Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, fearless leader of the Center for Lit crew, and joined, as always, by my compadres in all things literary, my wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hello. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hi. Good to be with you guys. Are you all ready for another literary conversation of great import and weight and moment? Absolutely. Of course. Yes. Did I overstate it? Maybe. Probably. <laughs> Thanks for well. the standard. Do our best. <laughs> I don't know if it's a, a literary discussion of great weight and moment, but it is about a particular moment this time around that I'm excited to, uh, to discuss. We're going to talk about 20th century literature today and just kind of poll the group and get your guys' thoughts on the place of 20th century literature in the Western canon and issues related to 20th century literature that are important to us as readers and as teachers and as thinkers. And the reason I bring it up today is because the topic of 20th century lit seems to be the focus of a lot of conversation in the homeschooling world, in the classical education world, in the Center for Lit world in recent weeks and months. And some issues have come up that I think are really worth talking about and really worth going over and, and understanding what we think about uh, 20th century literature. In particular, if I could just kind of start our conversation off with this idea, there is a well-known transition that took place in Western intellectual life along about the turn of the 20th century. Um, implications of the works of Charles Darwin published in 1859, implications of the scientific revolution, the quantum revolution that took place in the first decades of the 20th century, implications for religious and intellectual life in particular that really transformed the way thinking people thought about the world in terms of art, in terms of theology, in terms of philosophy, and of course, in terms of science. And really kind of a sea change took place. Um, nothing was ever the same again in terms of the intellectual output of the West. Mm. And the result being that 20th century works, and we're going to talk about literature and art, obviously, because that's our, our bailiwick and our main interest. 20th century works reflect some of those philosophical changes in some pretty dramatic ways. And if I could just put a thumbnail sketch on it, the works that come after 1900 are a lot less traditional in terms of morality, theology, traditional values in the period after 1900. For this reason, teachers and parents and readers that see the world from a traditionalist perspective, maybe from a Christian perspective or a religious perspective, teachers and readers that are interested in giving their kids uplifting, edifying things to read and think about and watch, get a little nervous when it comes to 20th century literature and 20th century art. They shy away from things like the works of Ernest Hemingway, for example, the works of F. Scott Fitzgerald, the works of John Steinbeck. And that is an interesting topic, I think, 
how does, how should we relate to the works of the 20th century and maybe even the 21st century? What do we think about books like that? Do they have a place in our reading lives? Do they have a place in our teaching lives as parents and educators? How should we look at the product of the Western civilization that came along after those revolutions that I've been talking about? So that's the, the idea that I want to that I want to chew on with you guys today. And I don't just want to chew on it with you because <laughs> we have invited a special guest to join us on Bibliophiles today. And I'm proud to welcome my friend and colleague, Brian Wasco of writeathome.com to be with us today. Uh, Brian is a, uh, as I mentioned, a fellow, a curriculum developer, a fellow reader, and a really good friend I've known for many years. He has a lot of strong opinions about <laughs> literature and frankly about every other subject under heaven. And we hope that he will be willing to share them with us today. Brian, welcome to Bibliophiles. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. It is good to have you, my friend. Uh, we're hoping that you can weigh in on this topic of 20th century literature with us, because as I know from our long conversations on the, uh, on literary subjects in general, you're kind of a fan of 20th century lit. Is that not true? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that's a sweeping statement. I'm a fan of a lot of 20th century literature. And would you make a, would you make a distinction then uh, that would be helpful maybe for getting a conversation going? <laughs> um, well, I don't know if this is the place to start, but one thing that's occurred to me in this, uh, well, we haven't really had much of a discussion, but the hypothetical discussion of uh, 20th century literature and its value is the 20th century has um, more to choose from, right? I mean, there's lots of quality books, whether they're classics or not is a question we can talk about, but lots of valuable literature has been produced in the 20th century, but also a whole lot of really bad literature as well. Mm -hmm. An overwhelming amount, an overwhelming amount of terrible books have been written. You know, I would guess the 20th century has produced more bad writing than any century prior. <laughs> I think that influences why people are skeptical, right? I mean, uh, there's just so much bad stuff out there and lots of good stuff. I think it becomes a bit overwhelming. It's a lot simpler to point to, you know, Homer and Dante as examples of great literature from their era because it's the only stuff we have, the only stuff we know. Right. Mm. What's, a, what's a really terrible book written in 700 B.C.? Right. That's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. They all disappeared. <laughs> exactly. It's easy. It's easy to call that a classic. How do you call a classic that's, you know, a diamond in the in the rough in the twentieth century? That's that's trickier, I think. Would you say that there are there are um maybe this is a good way to, to phrase this this idea that's kind of rolling around in my head. Would you say that there is a a certain approach to the world and life that you see in 20th century and 21st century literature that is unique. I mean, does that, does that little uh, turning of the corner that I described at, at around the beginning of the 20th century, does that resonate with your own experience of literature written since then? Yes, it does. If, if we're talking in terms of trends and sort of general, general movements philosophically, Sure. I mean, I think I think that's pretty obvious that the, you know the modernists, especially, you know, are, are turning things around and thinking about the world and art, you know, in a different way than we've seen in previous centuries. So yeah, I would agree with that. Emily, you've um, gone on record in the past as saying that that turn, and this is probably putting words in your mouth, but that 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 turn has actually produced thinking about the great issues of life that is uniquely good. 
that there are ways in which the 20th century version of the universal questions that men are always asking in their books is beneficial to us. Would you, would you agree with that characterization? Yes, I think, and we're sitting at the feet of the master who knows way more about Cormac McCarthy than I do. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say. <laughs> but There we go. I love those books because even though it is a dark vision of the world, even though I may not necessarily agree with their foundational worldview, they have a contribution to the conversation to make that, I think, is a little more honest about human experience in the world. And they're a little more open about human doubt and suffering and sin, just the um, tendency of humanity towards sin that they approach those subjects a little more easily. You mentioned to me one time about um, uh, your fondness, maybe fondness is the wrong word, for James Joyce's Ulysses in this connection, didn't you, Emily? Yeah, which I know is a really weird thing because you can hardly understand it. <laughs> um, but I I read it along with a master teacher, and it's really interesting. James Joyce poses Ulysses um, as an epic, right? It, it, it's in the tradition of the Odyssey, Ulysses being the other name for Odysseus. Right. And instead of writing a sweeping epic about a, a war hero, he writes about a uh, kind of dumpy, normal man, just, and it's a one day cycle and he lives his life and he's having marital troubles with his wife. And at the end of the day, not much has really changed about his life, but one little, there's one little click kind of that something has clicked in his head um, and in his wife's head that may or may not change the rest of their lives. But it's kind of, I've had it described to me as kind of like a corkscrew, like you come back to the beginning, but you're a little bit further ahead than you were before. And it's all couched in the everyday instead of uh, the Trojan War, which in our lifetimes, we will probably never experience anything quite like that. Hmm. So a universal note of something like hope couched in a 20th century milieu and a 20th century view of the world. Hmm, interesting. Are you waiting for me to say something? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask... Um, uh, Brian, your reaction to that idea of, of James Joyce's Ulysses and a modernist take on universal themes, do you see that in your, your reading of 20th century lit as well? Well, first, the idea that I'm like the master when it comes to Cormac McCarthy is kind of laughable, but <laughs> I certainly make no such claim. But uh, I, will, I will say this, that I am super impressed that Emily has read uh, Ulysses, because I haven't, so I don't really feel. <laughs> I did not do it. I didn't do it voluntarily. I think it was an assignment. <laughs> right, right. But you have read a Cormac actually, McCarthy uh, title or two, Brian. Do you see? Would you agree with her assessment of the uh, with respect to McCarthy? Yes, actually. I, you know, again, I haven't read. I haven't read any Joyce, but well, I haven't read much Joyce, and I haven't read Ulysses. But I, I've had a similar kind of experience reading Cormac McCarthy. So obviously his his better known books present a really bleak, really dark, very violent perspective of, of the world. But I don't know if that's necessarily Cormac McCarthy. I don't think he's necessarily advocating that as um, <laughs> as as an appropriate perspective on the world, right? I don't think he's saying we should be gloomy and dark and depressed. It, it seems to me like his his really profoundly amazing antagonists are the ones who 
hold that view, right? The ones that most eloquently articulate that worldview in his books are guys like Chigurh in No Country for Old Men, you know, who is sort of this fatalist, this very, very dark, violent, fatalistic character and the judge in, um, oh, in, uh, Blood, in Meridian. Blood Meridian, right? Right. Two of the most frightening evil characters I've ever encountered in literature. And, and these are the guys who are talking that way. They're, they're portraying this world in a kind of you know, eloquence that, she, that reminds me of Ahab and, mm. in, in, uh, in Melville. But, mm. but certainly you wouldn't say you know, uh, that Melville is, is advocating Ahab's view on the world, right? I mean, right. He's, he's the crazy bad guy. And <laughs> so I think, I think uh, McCarthy does some of the same thing. The, the thing I think I've mentioned this to you before, too, I think – for me, at least, the, the key to understanding, or at least the key for me to appreciating the works of Cormac McCarthy, is in a little a little piece at the end of No Country for Old Men. Actually, the very very last paragraphs of No Country for Old Men. It was in the movie too. If anybody saw the oh yeah film I saw version it. of it, and they ended exactly the same way. The book ends with this uh, with the, the sheriff. I forget his name, but the main guy who's talking about this dream of his father and. Actually, I have it right here. Can I read it? Yeah, please. Please. I knew we were going to get to McCarthy, so. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. He says, um, he's just describing his father, and he says, I had two dreams of him after he died. I don't remember the first one all that well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere, and he gives me some money, and I think I lost it. The second one was like we was both back in the older times, and I was on horseback going through the mountains of a night. I feel like I have to read this in a you know, like Western, Southern, <laughs> West, Southwestern accent. You, know? you go, Haas. I hear that, Brian. <laughs> going, going through this pass in the mountains, it was cold and there was snow on the ground. <laughs> Sorry, it was cold and there was – this is actually very serious stuff. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> it was cold and there was snow on the ground and he rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing. He just rode on past, and he had this blanket wrapped around him, and he had his head down. And when he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead, and that he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there. And then I woke up. And that's that's literally the last line of the book, mm. and that that image of of the old man with with a a light and a horn. Huh. I don't know if, I don't I don't know what that means. I'm guessing like a a cattle horn of some kind. I don't know what the horn looks like. But right, riding out ahead into all that cold and all that dark. And I, I just I find like in the in the works of M- McCarthy are are over and over you get these very very bleak stories. And yet, in the midst of all of them, is, is one character who somehow maintains purity and goodness and love. Mm. So I've always said, like, the running theme I find in McCarthy is the, the inexplicable survival of goodness mm. in, a, in a dark world. So if you've seen The Road or read the book The Road, you know, it's very obvious in that one. There's the little boy who's, you know, tenaciously kind and good and hopeful. Right in this, this desperate dystopian kind of world that he lives in. Um, you know, there's the, in no country for old men, it starts with this regular guy who 
wakes up in the middle of the night and can't shake the memory of this Mexican guy who was you know, dying of thirst that he had left alone in this in the scene in the desert. And he, he fills up a, a jug of water to take it back to him in the middle of the night. Uh. And his wife or girlfriend, whoever asks him, where are you going? He says, what are you, she says, what are you doing? It's about the dumbest thing I've ever done. And he goes back in mercy and compassion to give this guy water. And that's the beginning of the end of him. Oh, wow. Right. It's all the, the nightmare comes after that. Right. Because he's kind of caught trying to do this act of mercy. You know, wow. And uh, Blood Meridian, it's the, the, the kid who's this not a good character. And yet there's something in him that just isn't utterly corrupted by the evil that's all around him somehow. You know, and in the end, he, he's crushed by it, which is just a little despairing. Right. Book, but. Anyway, that's just what I see over and over. And, and because of that, because, because the, the picture of the world is always so bleak, that, that little glimmer of goodness in it for me is, is really moving and really profound. It's like, you know, like a diamond, a bright diamond against a really black mm. background. You know, it just shines. It, it stands out more obviously. So mm. that's why I love it. And, not, and, and I just, you know, he's also just in terms of the, the aesthetics of his, of his writing ability. Of his style. Yeah. Writes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really profound. Really good. That can, that connection, uh, the, the contrast between the, um, the disaster of the world, the despair, the darkness, making the good stand out by comparison and kind of catching at our hearts and, and giving them a lift. That seems to be something that all literature has in common, even across that 20th century break, right? I mean, we could look back even at the, at the ancient classics and say, you could look at them that way as well. You could see the violence of the Iliad, for example. And some people interpret that as just an expression of an ancient culture, but maybe, mm-hmm. maybe Homer looked around at his world and said, this world is a violent place and did a, did a Cormac McCarthy for the 8th century BC and mm-hmm. said, here are some glimmers of the potential of man and the hope that there is in human nature in the midst of all of this, all of this violence. Is that, does that do violence to, uh, to the ancients to read him that way? I don't think so. What do you guys think? Ian, what do you think about no, that? I don't think so at all. No, I don't. I don't think that does does violence to the ancients at all. I mean, there's a sense. That, I mean, we love to we harp on it all the time at at Center for Literature, particularly on our podcast, right? The idea that the real role of literature is highlighting suffering and creating a community of of fallible, finite creatures musing on their fallibility and musing on their finiteness and or on their finitude. I guess the word is. And I, I think a, a reading of the ancients in that regard uh, shores up our our ideas around here. Well, maybe what scares us so much about 20th century literature is that we can't separate it into a different culture and say, oh, those were just the customs. We see the problems right here in front of us. And, you know, um, customs have developed in such a way that when we express things with language, we are more comfortable saying exactly what we mean, sometimes in shocking ways. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something about that, something that 20th century lit and 21st century lit, those reflect the culture that we currently live in. And if you're talking about the violence of your culture and the violence of your culture is represented by a guy wearing an ancient Greek mask, throwing a javelin through somebody's eye socket, (laughs) you can separate, right? You can go ahead and, and stand apart from that. But if it's cowboy and Indian violence, or if it's the kind of violence that shows up in, in John Steinbeck, or if it's the kind of darkness and sin that we actually live with, I can imagine us as parents and teachers saying, well, I think maybe we will avoid that kind of literature. Maybe that's a little close to home. Yes? Right. Yes. 
which seems to be kind of just a version of chronological snobbery, mm. right? Because oh. we can say, we can justify the violence in the Iliad mm. because, well, that's just shedding light on a culture from an important culture from our history. Right. And yet, but, but we can't look at the violence in our current culture and, and say, well, there's no advocation of violence in Cormac McCarthy, for example. But, um, but it's reflective of the reality. I mean, he's writing in No Country for Old Men, right, of the, the drug war going on in our southern border, which yeah. is part of the reality of 20th century America. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's harder to confront it, but we could make the same argument, right? I mean, it's just he's not advocating violence. He's just this is what our culture experiences. But that brings up, though, a reason that a lot of the the parents and teachers that we talk to, and even in our own hearts, we think this sometimes, I think, that brings up the the reason of, um, I'm trying to teach my kids by by giving them literature. We're having a lit class and a lit course, and we're trying to give them a literary education. There's an aspect of training the character and molding the virtue and passing on a worldview to my students using literature as a tool. Uh, if that's my goal, doesn't the literature that actually comes from closer to my own time where the darkness is painted in really scary colors, isn't there a reason to kind of suppress that or not assign it quite so much or avoid it? Are we safer to make sure that the darkness is presented in some alien ancient way? Probably. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I mean, there, it is safer, you know. So the question is, how much, how much safety is required in a, in a, in a good education, right? I mean, how much do we prioritize that? And I'm not, I'm not dismissing that idea at all. Like I, I, you know, I've, I've got children that we've homeschooled all the way through, and we wrestled with exactly those same questions. You always do. Like, I, I believe there's great benefit in reading lots of books, but that doesn't mean that you introduce them whenever you feel like it. Right? You, have to, you have to think carefully about when your children are prepared mm-hmm. you know, to think through. I, I don't teach Cormac McCarthy in any of the literature courses I teach, and I have no plans to. I don't, I don't, I don't think the average 15, 16, 17-year-old in our country is ready to, to, to uh, make sense of that stuff. Right. Right. Um, so... It's a matter. It's a matter of timing and, and recognizing the maturity and the, the thought process and the particular temptations and vulnerabilities of our children. You might have said the same uh, thing about sure. the about Homer's Iliad if you were a, the the parent yeah. of a teenager in the eighth century BC <laughs> too, too, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, probably not. No. Heck, heck, I, <laughs> so, I remember so, forbidding my children to just read the Bible on their own. Right. It was when my daughter came mm. to me one day and said, Daddy, what's a concubine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's get that chapter. I love it. <laughs> I don't know if you could go so far as to say that um, that the ancients wouldn't have wanted their kids to be exposed to that when you read things like Virgil's Aeneid and see the youth sent off to battle. <laughs> I think they were surrounded by that kind of um, warrior culture mm. and they saw things well, a but, lot younger. Okay, so, but I, I agree with you, but so are we. Well, to some extent, right? but it, n- not necessarily. I mean, that is one of the valid things that Christian homeschool parents are trying to do is um, keep the kids in the nursery a little bit longer than right. they would be if they were shoved out the door and into a public school environment. You know, I think we are trying to protect them in some really specific ways from the culture. I really agree with Brian. It's all about, um, about timing, Mm -hmm. about knowing your own student. I don't think anybody 
um, here is arguing that we should include Cormac McCarthy in uh, a book list for our young teens, right. you know, or right. even our high schoolers. And most of uh, my kids would not be ready for Cormac McCarthy in high school. Right. But what we're talking about is whether or not that kind of literature um, deserves mention or consideration when we start talking about classics. About the great works of the Western well, and tradition. Also, I, I think that there's a sense in which you also it might be harder to know when it's time to break that safety, right? So we teach Hemingway in our online academy, right, to high schoolers. There is a time when you have to take the leap and not be safe anymore. Right. I would be interested in hearing how to know when that is. That is a great question. Doesn't that have so much to do with, like what Brian said, knowing your own children you know, understanding as a parent, you're right there with them every day and you understand them. You see their mental and their emotional development kind of running along side by side. And it puts you in, in, a, in the peculiar seat of being there to kind of steer that conversation. Right. And I, I think you strike when the iron is hot. Yeah. When those kinds of questions that All those right. books are, are, um, are really predicated by start to come up in the normal thought processes of the student. It's time to start taking them in hand and saying, you're not the first person to have asked this question. Mm -hmm. You're not the first person to have made these kinds of observations. Let's see what some other people who thought like you had to say about this. Right. It's one of the wonderful aspects of homeschooling, right? Is that we, we get to make those decisions for our children and the, you know, the, we who, who know them best and love them most mm-hmm. and care about their development the most get to wade through these questions. There, there's no, you know, there's, there's no list, of, there's no checklist to decide when kids are ready for Hemingway, right? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. Uh, and and we're, we, we know going in that we may be doing this too early or we might be holding it off longer than we need to. We're, we're, we're never going to get exactly right. But nobody's better equipped to make these decisions about when kids are ready to be introduced to certain kinds of literature. Or any or certain kinds of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. For that matter, than than parents, right? Right. Yeah. I was thinking of this one time. I taught uh, I taught a little co-op for middle schoolers for a few years, and we just we just would do books, like a little book club kind of that met weekly. And one of the books that we read was I can't remember the name of it. Is it something about the mountain, the other side of the mountain, my oh, yeah. side? What's the one with the oh, yeah. my side away? of the mountain and the other side of the mountain? Yeah. There are two of them. Side of the mountain. Right. The far side. Well, the, we read the first one. The far side or my side? The, far, it, the first one's my side of the one mountain. Of the and the last of the one of the mountain. And, <laughs> and the second one is the far side of the mountain. No, it's the other side, Ian. Okay. It's all the way around the mountain. Right. Well, We're going around the mountain here. <laughs> no wonder I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, you know, uh, I had one family who just withdrew their son for that portion of the course that I taught. They said, yeah, we're just going to pull him out and we're not going to have him read that book. And, uh, you know, so I asked them why. Uh, and they said, because he like fantasizes about running away from home. And he is, uh, you know, he's a, he's a young guy. And at one point he like packed up a, you know, a, like a, put, put a bunch of clothes in a rag and tied it to a stick. And, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> they found him several miles from home. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to run away and it was all, and, and I said, that's a really good call. Cause that book really does kind of glamorize, you know, independent survival on my own kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. So that wasn't a sin issue, but it was just, it was, these are parents who knew their son and that particular book was going to tempt him in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I, one example. I, I have uh, experiences like that too. I mean, there, 
we didn't ha- we didn't let Ian read the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn until until he was in high school. He was in high school. Yeah, and then he read it multiple times. And then he read it every semester <laughs> for him talk. an entire undergraduate career. But <laughs> I never I never want to look at that book again. <laughs> <laughs> but we we just determined, and and this may have been a like Brian was saying a minute ago, it may have been a bad call for one reason or another. But we just thought some of the issues going on in that book that Twain was interested in taking up uh, were too heavy a load for our son to carry at that point in his life. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So here's a question, and this this might be a slight redirection of the of the conversation, but um, I was having a conversation with a brace of homeschooling parents um, recently in our area. And uh, they didn't know that um, they didn't know Center for Lit. They didn't know that I actually taught home homeschoolers for a living. And okay, wait, time out. About, go ahead. Time out. Did you say a brace of? <laughs> say a brace. A brace. Yes. A brace of. They were a little abrasive, but no, a brace of. Just, just, just the two. <laughs> just the two. <laughs> That's what normal people say, Ian. They just say two. <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, anyway, we were having a conversation, and they were talking about how their son, who was in high school, had just uh, embarked on his first online uh, literature course and then qualified it by saying Christian literature. And I guess what I would love to know is if that is uh, – maybe, maybe would love to know is the wrong word. I would love to talk about for a second in the context of 20th century literature, in the context of the danger of introducing ideas too soon and uh, – shoveling a bunch of really heavy content onto kids that aren't prepared for it. Um, is that a reason to insulate ourselves from authors whose ideas aren't Christian ones? Because I think that is a component of the conversation we're having about 20th century literature. We don't just exclude it because it's raw and too um, soon. We exclude it because we ourselves as Christian educators wouldn't have written it. And I think that's a really prevalent perspective. Um, what it, if if there is any value in it, what do we do with that idea? Do we read Christian authors up to a certain age and then start reading non-Christian ones? Um, do we exclude the Christian authors that write about difficult things? Uh, how do we interact with that idea? That is Who a wants great, to go first on that? Brian, you go first as the guest of honor, and then we'll go <laughs> around the room. I think that's a fabulous question. Go ahead, Brian. It's a it's a great question, and one of the it's hard to answer because I've got so many. It raises so many other questions to me, like what is a Christian author, and how do you, right. you know, at, and and what's a Christian book? You know, does it mean it has to have an overt, you know, Christian message? Can it can it be a book by a, a person we know is a Christian, and you know, therefore we know they're going to steer clear from some of the more offensive material? It, drawing any kinds of hard lines when it comes to evaluating literature and it's and it just it's the same problem we have with just about anything else right like the, like the parents who refuse to let their kids watch r-rated movies or pg-13 movies whatever they just sort of pick an arbitrary spot just kind of pick and, <laughs> yeah just, we're just not gonna do and then but then if you ever watch there's, there's plenty of g movies out there and pg movies that have you know awful worldviews that are right. probably more harmful you know I, I used to say the most this is an old reference now but the, the most dangerous tv show i ever saw was friends mm. which mm. was har- harmless in so many ways but um you know i mean they didn't use profanity there was no nudity in it right, There's right. No, and yet and yet the show was about these like un- unrealistically good-looking <laughs> fun funny personal people that everybody wants to be friends with 
and and every episode was about their various sexual exploits right? right i mean it was all about this this lifestyle that is completely anti-christian and yet you know this like catchy theme song and these likable people that were just it was so effective i'm not saying it was designed to do this but it would have been a really good way to win people over to sort of that corrupted mm-hmm. immoral lifestyle hmm. uh, yeah. and yet you know it would have been a pg movie if it was rated right, right. so mm-hmm. we right. just have to be so we have to be we have to be careful about any kind of just saying it has to be Christian, you know. It may, <laughs> we always I was a youth leader for a long time at my church, and music was always the issue, right? You know, so it has to be Christian music, and and more and more Christian music began pushing the edges. It just became crazy. Like what what makes it Christian? Yeah, and it's the same thing with literature. So I, that's that's the first thing is, is that seems a little bit difficult to do. Mm. You guys have covered this. I've listened to most of your podcasts, and this is—I don't want to just rehash the same stuff. But there's, there's because I completely agree. If there, there's anything that I've that, that that's been the running theme in your podcast, it's been that there's a value in literature that doesn't align with our Christian worldview, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it 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 doesn't have to proclaim, you know, goodness and truth and beauty specifically in a Christian way in order for it to be valuable to us and worthy of our attention. So, yeah, so it's a limit to just Christian writers, I think is a silly restriction. And that's not to say there aren't some excellent Christian writers that we should be reading, you know, there's lots of those. No, there's not a lot, there's some. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, how would you answer your own question on that score? Man, I I feel like I posed a really broad question. and then Brian did a great job of saying you asked like seven questions just then. Um, <laughs> and I agree with him. There, there are like seven different questions wrapped up in that. The, what I tried to communicate to that, um, the two of them, those two parents, um, <laughs> the brace, what I tried to communicate to them, the, this is in the same conversation um, where they were talking about writing and talking about how the structure of a writing class really impedes creativity. And my comment to them on that score was, um, I'm not sure that we can call creativity creativity until communication has been achieved. And in order to learn to communicate, you have to have the rudiments of, of a particular discipline under your belt, mm-hmm. right? So your 14-year-old your isn't an excellent writer already. If he were Ernest Hemingway, he wouldn't be an excellent writer already. If he were Homer himself, he wouldn't be an excellent writer already because he's 14 and he doesn't have the rudiments under his belt yet. I think I would say something similar about work of literature. We don't have a right maybe to exclude um, things in our own day, but I think that what I'm trying to say is I think excluding literature from our own period is a presumptuous thing to do. We We haven't gotten to the end of what there is to say about the way that our culture is now, the thoughts that we're thinking about it, the intellectual tradition of our time, the 20th and 20th, 21st century is still under development. Yes. And so the question of what a classic is and whether we should or shouldn't teach it is maybe an irrelevant one right this minute. There's there's work to do as readers and thinkers and interpreters of the literature that's being produced right now. Because we don't know what the classics are yet that are going to come out of this particular generation. That's I really I agree that that's work for us grownups to do in large part. I mean, we need to be reading the works of Cormac McCarthy and others like him. Who Steinbeck are, and Fitzgerald. Yes, and... We need to be reading those works ourselves and not excluding ourselves from those 
conversations in order to be able to help our kids navigate them when they come upon them. And maybe it's not time for them to read all of those things quite yet. I would actually say the same thing about books by Marilyn Robinson, oh, yes. for example, I'd who never, is I mean, widely Marilyn regarded Robinson. as a frontline, quote unquote, Christian mm-hmm. author who's, who's writing stuff that my money says is going to be a classic Absolutely. and we'll still be reading it a hundred years from now. Doubtless. All of the themes in her works are deeply soaked in the traditional ideas of Christianity and the love and mercy, mercy and grace of God. And I would not hand those to a young reader. No, I don't think they're, they wouldn't appreciate them yet. Right. They, they'd be a, it'd be a giant miss. It, at, at best, it would be a miss. And at worst, I think it would be really disturbing. Um, she's writing grown up books for grown up readers. And regardless yeah. of the label Christian that you could legitimately apply, um, inappropriate for our students, I would, I would say. What do you guys think of that? Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm not inappropriate because of um, because of there being anything disgusting within them, right? But just not appropriate content to their age. Yeah. So there's age yeah. appro- appropriateness. Let me give you two more examples. Consider. Two more examples. Flannery O'Connor, which you guys have talked about before, right? I yeah. Mean, she's not. Our kids aren't are all ready for Flannery O'Connor either. Absolutely not. As validly Christian as any writer. Although we do include her in our list. <laughs> well, yeah, and but. I, you know, I think parents all understand, like, there's a certain point. You don't teach those to 14-year-olds, to right? They're not reading a good man's book to find. Right. No. Right. Right. And then Walker Percy is another who, another one of my favorite 20th century writers who is, same thing, has a has a very um, sort of deeply sort of fundamental Christian perspective on the world, and yet is can be very perverse, very earthy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so... Yeah, so I, I actually had a Walker Percy book in an advanced lit class I taught Chris seniors one year and realized about halfway through that they're just, even though they were 17, 18 years old, they just weren't ready. Right. And I had some parents complain and they were right. I mean, they were right. I, I was kind of pushing the envelope too much with that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Even though the fundamental message of the book was fantastic I and mean, it was really, really strong and solidly Christian, you had to kind of wade through a lot of. I mean, what people would call maybe filth, I don't know, just really offensive language at least in, in order to get to it. Yeah. So what it sounds like we're coming to is an understanding of uh, of the idea that judging a book by the worldview of the author isn't maybe the best way to judge the book. In other words, if we say let's only read Christian novels, we still may encounter content that's too heavy for our young kids. Mm-hmm. So maybe we shouldn't be drawing these worldview conclusions as a, a rubric for what books are good and what books are worthy of inclusion on lists of classics. Well, Brian's comment got me thinking about a slightly different direction and another question, which is why did Walker Percy include this filth, quote unquote, in his <laughs> book? If it's a it's a Christian message, why? Can you right. guys see where I'm going with this? Like, why would we encounter those things in the first place and how in what way can they be? useful to in his, in his literary toolbox why did he choose to do that if he is a right. supposed christian because mm. christians well, are perfect we, don't we all know <laughs> <laughs> well i can say i can say this i don't i i have an, all i can do is give you my opinion on that um i don't i don't think it's because he wanted to you know titillate um right you know, I don't think it was for that reason. I don't think he did it because he thought, oh, I'll get a wider audience if I throw a couple 
profanities <laughs> in here. Right. Um, right. He just, um, he, and he's not, I don't, I don't think he would probably describe himself as, I mean, he's been dead for a while, but I don't think he would describe himself as an evangelical. He, he's, um, right. he's from a different, a different Christian tradition that I think places much less weight on the, the sinfulness of, of language in particular and, and really of just frank talk of sexuality. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think, I don't think he would have seen it as quite as offensive as the conservative evangelical today. Right. Yep. Um, True. Right. Well, and, and also if a lot of times authors use that kind of language and um, uh, treatment of particular subject matters like sexuality in order to depict human nature, in a particular way, right? You know, painting a true right. picture of man in his in his fallen state. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the direction I wanted to go in, which is what I mean. Why? What is it good for? Do are we looking for books that proclaim a worldview, or are they better if it's a perfect model for us to give ourselves or our children? Um, are we looking for a good model? I guess is the question I'm trying to come to. The good model, it seems to me, um, is the scriptures. I mean, we, we our best model is Christ, the model man in every way. Um, but I think in a particular work of literature, what you're hoping to do is to bring the child to a situation in which they come to terms with the fact that they themselves are not good, that right. they themselves are not like Christ, <laughs> you know, and maybe they're in need of him. <laughs> At least that's my goal as a Christian parent for them to see themselves as they truly are at some point and see not only um, their own need, but also the need of humanity um, for a savior. Mm-hmm. And every book that depicts a fallen world, um, I, I think it, it gives you opportunity as a parent to make that case. Right. And that's not to say that every book that depicts a fallen world is one that should be therefore good. Yeah. That that's good. And it should therefore be read. I don't mean to say that at all, but I I wouldn't want to exclude a book because it does depict a fallen world. Right. I mean, books need to be telling the truth, the little T truth. Right. right? And there are a lot of books written by non-Christians that tell the little T truth about the world Mm -hmm. and about man that depict things, quote-unquote, as they are. And in as much as they do that, um, they're useful. And I don't mean to Mm. to say useful in that we should go use books. I mean, we should read books and receive what the authors say to us and then evaluate them on their own terms. But, um, you know, I I think we certainly shouldn't exclude books written by non-Christians simply because they don't go all the way to the end and make the same kinds of conclusions about things that we do. We don't want a general rule saying these are the books. Mm-hmm. But as we talked earlier, you know, I'm just thinking of the homeschooling moms that are listening to this broadcast right now. <laughs> right? You are free and encouraged to make individual decisions yes. about books that are that, that have value, that have acknowledged. You know, we can acknowledge that they're valuable, but your children may or may not be ready at any particular time to, to handle that mm-hmm. that particular material. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we want to avoid saying, well, these books are bad because X. And never read mm-hmm. these. As general rule, but there's always times, even though we say it's a really good book, you know, it's, it's probably not the time for you to engage your children with it. Right. right. Megan, you had a comment. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wondered. I mean, um, Mom, you mentioned that some non-Christian books do actually have little t truth in them, and I just wondered if the flip side of that is also true—that there are some. Um, 
actual Christian books out there that may not contain as much of the big T truth as we think they do. I mean, I'm just thinking of the Elsie Dinsmore books. There is not a lot of big T truth about the world that I live in present in an Elsie Dinsmore book. What do you I mean? don't I don't really identify with the world that Elsie's living in. I don't identify with Elsie as a character. I don't see myself in her, not even in the good things about her. There's not a lot of relatability in that character. Mm. And I wonder if I get more, just as a reader, from one of those non-Christian books that you were mentioning that may have some little T-truth wrapped up in all of the relatable, maybe even darker side of things that might worry parents but might actually be a good thing. What do you think about that? Mm. Well, it's certainly a possibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that um, relatability factor that you're talking uh -huh. about is an important one. And I think it might be a dangerous one, too. That might be what worries parents mm -hmm. is that, that that book may be more relatable in its negative qualities, you know? Like what Brian was mentioning, um, right. the, the parents that saw that their son was, he had a proclivity to run away. Exactly. You know? yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. But I think it's a strength also, so that might be... I don't know. It's one of the things that I struggle with thinking about this topic. That goes down to the heart of what you're, what you're saying goes down to the heart of a response I wanted to make to Emily's comment a minute ago about looking to literature for models for emulation as right. a parent or as a teacher. Um, isn't that, there there's, seems to me to be two different things we can do if we're trying to have some sort of productive experience with our students around literature. We can do what Emily mentioned, look for models for emulation that our kids can say, read and go be like the protagonist of this story. Yep. Or we can do what you're suggesting, Megan, which is read to find reflections of our actual selves, mm -hmm. to, to see descriptions and contemplations of the human condition as it is. Right. And that seems to, those seem to me to be two different ways to approach literature. And one has more of the using of literature about it mm. that Missy, you were mm. sort of looking askance at a minute mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. Like it's, that first one. Yeah. It seems to me like going to literature to find models for emulation. Like strip mining literature. Is a, is using literature as a tool or something else. I'll bet you most literary artists don't create literary art for the purpose of the, the moral improvement of their readers. Although I think some juvenile fiction authors do or have in the past. In fact, when literature began, when people started writing for children, that was one of the major things that they were interested in. That's why there's so much didactic literature for young children, right? Right. right. Um, but certainly as... for the win. Yeah, <laughs> as we, as the, as literature, um, well, as, as you get into adult literature, that is less, I think, prominent. Yeah. yeah. Less the goal all right. the time. Brian, right. let me let me ask you one more me, question. Can and, I, oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Sure. Well, no, I, I just want to make one comment related to that. Is that um, I I don't I don't think it's necessarily using literature to to find role models, and I think sometimes that can emerge out of an honest reading of a book. Yeah. I know I've done that quite a bit. You know, I still think of when I think of how to be a father. You know, I I still think of um, oh, no, I'm drawing a blank on his name uh, from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch, right? I mean, he's like my role model in the original book, not the mm -hmm. new one. Yeah. Not the old one. That's the new one. <laughs> Good distinction. Good clarification. Yeah. So um, that would be just one example. I don't have any problem with that as, as it arrives out, out of the book. It's okay to look for it. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this too. When you were talking about the Bible, you know, that Jesus is our model. And I'm thinking, well, sure. But it was 
a revelation for me when I was a child reading the Bible that not all the characters in the Bible mm-hmm. are behaving in a way that I'm supposed to emulate. Absolutely. And it, it was, wait, you mean Jacob made mistakes? That he was doing something wrong when he did that? The Bible even uses, you know, the, the mm-hmm. sin of the world and the corruption of the world in order to, to paint the picture of, of righteousness that we're supposed to pursue. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Well, let let me follow up then, Brian, with one question more for you, which is that uh, why, if you were to if if you were to be dropping some advice on listeners to bibliophiles and answer the question for us all, why should you, the adult, go read literature? What's the reason? What what impulse should drive you to participate in current literature from the twentieth and twenty first centuries? Okay, so as an adult, not not in terms of, of educating our children. Correct, as a reader of your own current yeah. age. Uh, boy, that is a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got thirty seconds, so get I, to it. <laughs> I can't. I, um, I mean, I don't have anything for you that isn't hasn't already been said much better by lots of other people. You know. Yeah, but we want to uh, hear you say. Why it. do we? <laughs> why does why? Why does anyone read literature? You know, it's, I mean, there's so many answers to that, right? I mean, it, 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 it exposes you. I mean, this is one of many, right? It exposes you to, um, to, uh, to circumstances and, and, and uh, places and people that you have no opportunity to meet otherwise, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, it, and, and, it, and through the lens, I'm talking in terms of great literature, through the lens of brilliant minds who are yeah. helping you to see it from a, a unique perspective, right? So you're, you're not just encountering it, but you're encountering it through the lens of someone else who's thoughtfully encountered it and yes. is now presenting it to you. Um, and it, it's, it, you know, it's the, why do we do art at all? Right. Because it, it, it evokes emotions in us. It makes us think and helps us understand the world we live in. And, I mean, it makes us better people. I've always said that. I mean, it's just, we read literature to make ourselves better people. I'm, I'm a better human being because I've, been introduced to Huckleberry Finn and Jay Gatsby, um, you know, and, and Atticus Finch and on and on. Right. I mean, these are, I, I count these as you know, my acquaintances in life. Yes. Um, and so, boy, I mean, honestly, I'd go on. How, how do you just, how, how, there's, there's no end to that question. We read because it's the human experience that we're encountering mm. through, through, you know, brilliant minds whose words can now remain forever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That is, I, I love that answer. I think that answer is fabulous. Why wouldn't you? There's a great answer. Why should you read literature? Why in the world not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. Brian, tell us about what you're doing at uh, writeathome.com. How can people get involved with, sure. uh, with what, what's going on with you? Okay. Uh, Write at Home focuses on uh, not literature, but uh, writing skills. So I'm, uh, you know, my background is, is, you know, I was an English major at the, in college and, and graduated with an education degree as well. And so I was a high school English teacher for years um, and started right at home in 2001 just with a handful of local homeschoolers around here who needed help with their writing skills. And it just evolved over time into an online program. That's real simple. I mean, it, it, we, uh, we provide writing assignments on a weekly basis, varied kinds of writing assignments, everything from, you know, creative stories to formal essays and research papers and that kind of thing. We uh, have kids write every week. And then we've got writing coaches, these wonderful, 
highly trained and highly skilled people who read the papers and mark them up with lots of helpful feedback and help the students revise and improve papers till they get to final draft. So it's all super simple. They do it from home through the internet. So that's what writing home is. We just write, have kids write a lot with a lot of variety and we give them writing coaches who walk them through the process. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And people can find out more at writeathome.com, correct? W-R-I-T-E-A-T-H-O-M-E.com. That's correct. Very good. Very good. Brian, thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. It is always a pleasure to talk to you in person or online, and you um, you definitely put a spark of life in our conversation. Well, let me say that I didn't say this earlier. I wish I had, but the, there's, there are few people in the world that I would rather spend time with than the Andrews clan. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that that is with all sincerity. You know, I, if, uh, if there's ever been a, a family that I feel like are my, what's the phrase, bosom friends. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, Anne of Green Gables, is that wrong? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Bosom that's friends on. indeed. That's a nice literary reference. And we will take yeah. it for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, good to be with you. Thank you to, uh, as well to all of you who are listening. Thanks for um, for joining us for this episode of Bibliophiles. Also, thank you for rating the podcast. If you've gone to iTunes and done that for us uh, recently, we do appreciate it. And I want to invite you as we close today to check out the resources and materials we have available for those of a literary bent at www.centerforlit.com, including uh, perhaps most especially the Pelican Society, which is our membership program for people interested in the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Inside the society, you'll find discounts on all our products and access to exclusive resources, everything we can think of that we are stockpiling and laying there just waiting for you. So come on by and check it out if you like, uh, www.centerforlit.com in the Pelican Society. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>